Great to see everybody today. Great to be here to worship together as we continue our series in Isaiah 40 that, like Jordan said, uh, is going to ground us as a church this next week as we're entering into our third annual week of prayer and fasting. So we're going to be in Isaiah 40. We're going to pray God's word back to God. And then we're going to be in Isaiah 40 from the pulpit for the rest and uh, basically through March. So we want to familiarize ourselves with the greatness of Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah 40, where do I start? I want to tee us up, prime the pump. It is an amazing, glorious, beautiful, grace-filled chapter in God's Word. It's a chapter that points us to God's glory and His grace that we get comfort and strength from. Last week, Todd, our brother, did a great job setting the context and starting to walk us through Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 1 and 2. And we saw that Isaiah 40 was written for God's people, preparing them as they were about to go into exile. And that the message from verses 1 and 2 for the people preparing them for exile was one of comfort, comfort. So Isaiah 40 puts before us the reality that whether you're in exile or you're about ready to be in exile, the greatest need and the greatest cry of our lives is to behold our God. One of my favorite dead guys in history, Charles Spurgeon, said this. And when I heard this quote recently, it just is in tune with Isaiah 40. Spurgeon said this about the church's greatest need. The church's greatest need was, quote, that they would plunge themselves into the Godhead's deepest sea and that they would be lost in his immensity. Wow. That is our prayer and our posture as we enter into Isaiah 40 today. That's always the need, the greatest need for God's people and it's our greatest need today, no matter what we're bringing with us today to church, no matter what the context is of the world around us, our greatest need is to behold the greatness and glory and grace of our God. So follow along with me. I'm going to read our text for us. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Have God's word in front of you. Look at God's word. I'm going to read it aloud together for us. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through five. This is God's word. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So let's pray together before we begin our time in God's word. Please agree with me in prayer. Father God, we need you today. We need to hear from you today through your word. So may you open our ears, give light to our eyes, and soften our hearts to treasure you more fully. I pray you will give us a sense of your presence today. Prepare a way in our hearts to behold you. Open your word to us today and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Isaiah 40, verses three through five. We're going to ask two questions 
of the text together today and let God's word speak into these questions. So the first question is who is coming? And the second question is what does it mean? So first, who is coming? So again, put your finger on God's word. I want you to see it on the pages in the text of God's word. Notice how strong and how dramatic the start is the verses three through five, right? The lead is definitely not buried. A voice cries. So back in verses one and two, look back on the page in front of you, look at verses one and two. God said to comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now this voice picks that up and carries that and begins to cry that message to God's people the charge of how comfort is going to come. And then again, what's the voice crying? Look down at verse three. What's it say? What is the voice crying? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So you can't see who this voice is, but you know something big is coming. A voice cries, and then the grandeur of what it cries, something big is on the way. So who is coming? And there's much that could be said, but I think this is helpful for us to know a little bit of the historical context in this situation. So um, what's coming, the original audience, right, when they first heard Isaiah 40, they would have known, oh, I know what's coming. Royalty is on the way. A king is coming. And one way we can know that, I thought this was really uh, helpful and interesting, there was um, a Babylonian-like tablet that was discovered, and it was sharing an announcement of a king coming, and here's what the Babylonian announcement says, and tell me if you think it sounds a lot like Isaiah 40. It said this, this ancient Babylonian inscription that was discovered. The inscription said this, announcing a king, going from one part of the kingdom to another. Make his way good, renew his road, Make straight his path. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 40, right? So the language of verses three through five here of how comfort is going to come, it's kingship language in verses three through five. The language captures the essence of what kingship is all about, of who is coming. And that's good authority and flourishing that good authority brings, right? So a king has what? A king has authority, right? And then he has the authority so that every barrier is knocked down, every gap is bridged. And then what do true kings do? True kings make their kingdoms, the people under their authority flourish, don't they? It's been said about authority, when authority is rightfully exercised, it's like rain on a thirsty field for anyone under that authority. So that's the idea here of what's coming. The king, this king who's coming, it's royal kingship language. This king comes to an impassable wilderness. Look at verses three through five. But now it's passable because he comes. The king comes to a barren desert and now it's livable. So who is coming? A king is coming. And not just any king, but a good king and a king that's altogether more glorious than anything this world has to offer. That's what this voice is crying. Wow, what a start here after the comfort, comfort, my people charge in verses one and two. 
So think about it like this. I thought this was a helpful way to kind of drive this point home. So when a, a human king would come, like, and this king is going to travel from one part of the kingdom to another, and let's say there's like this canyon or this chasm, the people would have built a bridge, right? So the king and everyone kind of in his company would pass over that. But when this king comes, what happens? The chasm vanishes altogether. The valleys are raised up. The mountains are made low. So if a king was coming, a regular kind of king, and there was a mountain in between point A and point B, they would have like built a road, maybe a mountain pass to get from one part of the kingdom to another. But then when this kind of king shows up, what do the verses say in front of you? The mountains themselves come down. This is a different kind of king altogether. It's like one commentator said on Isaiah 40, the king's road is straight, level, and free of obstacle. He will arrive without fail, travel without difficulty, and be undelayed by hindrances. So who is coming? It's royalty. It's a king. But what kind of king is Isaiah 3 through 5 pointing us to? Look at verse 5. It says, all flesh shall see it together. So all mankind will see this kind of king together. So this means this king is the king of the whole world, not just one little part of it, right? And then if the whole world can see it, just think about it. What does that imply? Where's this king coming from? From outside the world. If all the world can see it, he's coming down to this place. All flesh will see this king. So do we see what the voice is crying out here, right? That God's people in exile, this is how they're to be comforted. God's people in exile are to be strengthened in view of this coming king. They're to be comforted. They're to be encouraged by the certain word of this king coming. Prepare the way for this king of a true king who has absolute authority that the valleys rise up, the mountains come down to make his path straight. A king who brings ultimate healing that makes a desert flourish. Wow, this poetic, prophetic language here of who is coming of a certain kind of king. I think it's helpful to reflect on this in a few different ways. Some of you in this room are probably already thinking about this, but doesn't this like point to one of the deepest longings in the human heart, doesn't it, of this kind of king coming? Like think about, for those of you that like history, how many stories have been written in history of a good king? In every culture, in time and place, it's like hardwired into our DNA. It's like it's coded onto our hearts, and it's not a design flaw, it's a design feature of this coming king. It's something that we long for. We know this, right? This deep hope of a good king coming. This is probably what some of you are thinking about already. J.R.R. Tolkien, right? He talked about this. All the old tales and myths and stories of kings point to an underlying reality. And that's why these legends and these stories of good kings coming move us, like Tolkien's Return of the King, right? 
So many of you probably know this story. I'm sharing this to those of you that don't, and those that do, it's always a good reminder. So Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are friends. They're on a walk by Oxford University. This is before Clive Staples Lewis came to trust in Jesus. And they're having this conversation. Tolkien is talking excuse me, with Lewis about this, about myths and fairy tales and stories and like the story that's underneath the story, right? And what that points to. C.S. Lewis, think about that. C.S. Lewis says he's never really connected those dots before. He's never thought about that before, that there was an underlying reality to all the stories, to the myths about kings. And then do you know what Tolkien said on this walk by Oxford University? Tolkien says to Lewis, Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. And God used that to shine the light of his spirit in C.S. Lewis's heart, and eventually he would come to trust in the true king, right? So this is kind of the kingship language that we're feeling here in Isaiah 40, verses three through five. But how do we know that that's not just something we want to believe? How do we know that that's true, something that we can trust? How do we know there's this kind of good king and that he's coming? And how we can know that is because of how the New Testament picks up Isaiah 40 and runs with it like crazy, okay? So that's what's going to bring us to our second point today, our second question we want to ask of Isaiah 40. What does this mean that a king is coming? So for those of you that have your Bibles in front of you, I hope you do flip over real quick to Luke chapter one. I wanna take us to verses 76 through 80. Luke one, 76 through 80. I love hearing the pages turn, that's awesome. Here, John the Baptist, his dad, Zachariah, Zachariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies about his son, about John the Baptist. Starting in verse 76, Zachariah says this, and you child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80 And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Did you hear it? Do you see it right there in Luke chapter 1? It was prophesied that John the Baptist would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And where was John as he grew older? Verse 80 says, he was in the wilderness. The beginning of the Gospels echo Isaiah 40. And this connection to Isaiah 40, it's made explicit by John the Baptist himself, and it's in all four Gospels, okay? So the tide Isaiah 40 is explicit in the New Testament. So for example, in John chapter 1, verse 18, the religious leaders, these guys come to John the Baptist, and they ask him, who are you, right? Who is this guy? How does John reply? In verse 23, John says, I'm not the Christ, but he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
then just to make it crystal clear, leaves no doubt, John the Baptist takes Isaiah 40, he connects it to Isaiah 53, and he looks at Jesus and says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this means God's word, interpreting God's word, this means that Jesus is the long-promised and hoped for and glorious king of Isaiah 40. To behold your God is to behold Jesus, the Savior King. That's what Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 means. So then just think about that for a minute. Like press that into actual people, actual followers of God that have lived before us. Think about the original audience of Isaiah 40 and then their years of exile and then the years of the rest of the Old Testament and then 400, 400 years, longer than our country has been in existence, 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament for this promised king to come, right? In all of this though, God's people were to be comforted by the sure promise of a coming king because how does verse five end? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's how Isaiah 40 verses three through five have been experienced by God's people before us. All those years of waiting, of wondering if God had forgotten, if God was going to keep his promise, if this king really would come. And then God keeps his word as he always does by the sending of his son to be the savior king, to fulfill the promise of Isaiah verses three through five. A king who was announced what? By a voice in the sky, by a voice of the angels to shepherds, and then confirmed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness of John the Baptist, this is the king. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, just, just think of that. Like I want you to feel this, okay? It's not just a history lesson. Think of all the prayers and trials and sufferings and tears and waiting of God's people between Isaiah 40 and Jesus coming. That was a long, long time. Think of the longings in their exile. How many must have cried on their knees, how long, O Lord, how long till the king will come? And then the king comes, and how does he come? As a child, as a lamb to bring ultimate comfort by being the sacrifice for the pardon of their iniquity in verse two, just as God had promised because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what does the promise of a coming king mean in Isaiah 40 verses three through five? When verse five says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, that means God in his self-disclosure, right? Making him known in all he is, in all his diverse excellencies, the fullness of his personal presence, that he is gonna reveal himself in his glory. But then think about the original audience here in Isaiah 40 and the God's people that clung to this promise for years. 
how could God reveal his glory to them? How could he be loving and favorable to them, to this people who were in exile? And why were they in exile? Remember what we learned last week? Because they didn't keep the covenant, the agreement that they had made with God, and then they're put into exile. How could God reveal himself to a people like this? A people who were prone to forget, who had spurned God's love up to this point in Isaiah 40. And it's because of how God ultimately reveals his glory, how it's finally, fully, and clearly revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, of the Savior King. I'm not making it up. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this about Jesus, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. The glory of God revealed is the revealing of God's Son, of the Savior King, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So look back again. Just see how God's word is is beautiful and glorious, and it's pointing us to Jesus. Look back at verse 2. What was the promise? That the warfare that God's people are experiencing would come to an end, that her iniquity would be pardoned. And that happens through the coming of the King, through the coming of King Jesus. Because only a perfect sacrifice could pay the price for their sin that God's holiness demanded, right? And only the righteousness of Jesus is glorious enough to clothe forgiven sinners in the righteousness of a king, in the righteousness of like a king's robe. That's the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the awe of how God keeps his promises. So Isaiah 40 highlights the reality that what exiles need most, what comforts exiles is the coming sure promise of a king. That's what exiles ultimately need to hear, not just the details of how their exile will end, how long it's gonna last. What they need to know is there is good, this good of a king and he is coming. And then they wait on him. That's how Isaiah 40 is gonna end when we get there in a few weeks. Because exiles don't end Your exile, the exile of these exiles don't end until we find our home in God. That's what Isaiah 40 is doing. That's how it should be working in us. So what else does Isaiah 40 mean? I've already said it a few times, but I want to drive this nail into all of our hearts because it's a word I need to hear often. It means God always, 100%, no exception, without fail, always keeps his word always keeps his word, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's sense of timing is not our sense of timing. And praise God that it's not. He is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness. He is always true to his word and always acts consistent with his character. When we're being prepared for exile, like Isaiah 40, When you're in exile, like the people who heard Isaiah 40, and every moment in between and every moment to come, what exiles need is to behold your God, to look at the coming king and the comfort that that brings to our exile. So as we move to a close, our second question was, what does this mean? I want to uh, take that a step below a little bit. 
What does it mean for us? I want us to briefly to consider what are verses three through five mean for us. And I want us to look at three ways, three things that Isaiah verses three through five means for us. First, what it means in our rough places. Look down again at verses three through four. We're a lot like what verses three through four describe, aren't we? Our lives become like a barren landscape. The ground of our minds can be uneven. I trust God one day. I doubt him the next, right? Uneven ground. And our hearts are rough places because of the unbelief in our own hearts, because of the suffering and affliction in the world around us, our hearts are rough places. When the king comes and it talks about this barren land, it's like the king is reordering everything and making everything right. Well, isn't that what our lives need too? Our lives need to be reordered and reoriented like what verses three through five are pointing us to. We need to be reoriented, restored, and reordered in the same way. But when we're feeling like I'm in that rough place, maybe the rough place of unbelief, doubting God's goodness, doubting if he's going to keep his promises, wondering if we know better than God, like my timeline, God's a little better than yours. Why don't you just kind of do it my way? When we're in that rough place, too often we lose our bearings and our eyes aren't on the coming king. We get bent inward upon ourselves and then we start to think we know better than God. And then when we lose our bearings, when we're disoriented and we realize we're in that rough place, what do a lot of us do? I know I do. I try to take it into my hands and fix it, right? I try to cut the path with a machete out of this rough place to get back on track. I know something's off. I know I'm in this rough place. What do I do? I try to build that straight road back to God right? And how do I do it? Through my own effort, through my own performance, through trusting in my own reserves and resiliency, my own resolve to make things straight. What does that do to you though? Is that comforting, comforting to God's people? It's not. When you're living out of that place, it's exhausting. It's exhausting God's people because you don't have the power to do that. You can't make your own way straight to get out of your rough place. It's exhausting to live out of a self-help kind of gospel rather than the gospel of the true king. The only way we experience the comfort of God in our rough places is through the comfort of the gospel, through the comfort of knowing it's only God that can deal with the obstacles in my heart the obstacles in your heart, the mountains of our pride, the valleys of our unbelief, the uneven ground of spiritual depression and even anxiety, the rough places of our fear and doubt. It's only God that can make those paths straight. I cannot do that. If I take it on me to get out of that rough place, I will only dig a deeper and deeper pit and get more and more disoriented around myself than keeping my eyes fixed on the coming king. 
Isaiah 40 drives home the truth that the obstacles in our heart are only healed through the work of God coming to us in Jesus, not us coming to him in our own merit, in our own efforts. Not our work of trying to like clean ourselves up before we come to him, right? But him coming to us in our rough places, in our brokenness, in our waiting, as we proclaim our lack and trust in his fullness. In your rough place, you have the choice to whether to try to get out of that place on your own or to cast yourself on the goodness of the king, to lean into your dependency. I can't get out of this place. God, come to me, make your way straight. And he does because he's that good and he always keeps his promises. And when that happens, then you start to experience and taste the love and comfort of God reordering your heart and reorienting your life around him. When our lives are oriented around ourselves, we get lost in our own wilderness. When they're oriented around the king, he makes our paths straight, doesn't he? So let me encourage you today to prepare the way for the Lord in your life by proclaiming to God the only thing you have to offer him is your need of him. The only thing you have to offer the king is how much you need the king. Then, and really only then, are you going to start to experience the love and the comfort of God reordering your heart, reordering your loves, and reorienting your life on his path. That's Isaiah 40, verses three through five. What does it mean for us applied to our hearts, right? Each of us individually and us as a local church family. Because again, I just, if you're not gonna hear anything else, I want you to hear this. We don't and we can't prepare a way for God in our lives through our own work and our own efforts. Full stop, you can't do that. That's not your job description. You don't have the ability to do that. And when you try to do that, you're only hurting yourself and you're exhausting yourself. Making straight paths is God's work to do and he is faithful and good to do it. So as we do often from the pulpit of GBC, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet, like we always say, we're really glad you're here. Church is the best place to investigate who Jesus is, right? I hope you're hearing this word today. I hope God's spirit is taking his word and pressing it into the crevices of your heart and taking the scales off of your eyes because today is a perfect time to trust in Jesus. If you hear his voice today, the voice that's crying out, don't harden your heart. Trust in the good king today. Second thing this means for us, what it means for our lives, it means comfort, repentance, and urgency, okay? So this means Isaiah 3 through 5, the coming king, prepare the way, the comfort the king brings. It means that if you're in Christ, our lives are to be marked by the comfort and repentance and urgency of what the voice cried in verses 3 through 5, of the fullness of the king's gospel. God comforted his people in their exile with the promise of his coming, right? Of the coming king. 
And then again, we, we saw it briefly. We could explore it for forever. How the New Testament picks up Isaiah 40, right? What happens there? How does John the Baptist apply the comfort, comfort, comfort of Isaiah 40? He calls those listeners of the voice crying out, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So in view of the comfort of God, of God's kindness, right? Like Romans 2 talks about, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So this word of God's comfort of the coming king should lead us to repentance too. So I want you to ask, just take a minute, consider for yourself, maybe talk about this this next week in our week of prayer and fasting with others in your community groups. Talk to the Lord about it in prayer. Are you marked with the comfort and repentance of Isaiah 40? Because the only right response to the glory and grace of the king is to be repentant and to find your comfort in him. Is that true of you? Does your comfort and repentance show you're trusting in this king? And if not, let me encourage you to respond to Isaiah 40 in the way that God calls us to, the way that the voice called for in the wilderness, with confession and repentance. And Isaiah 40, it means comfort for us. It means repentance. And also, it means urgency. This isn't just a truth or a passage that you leave up on the shelf in your Christian life. You press into this. Verses 3 through 5 means urgency. Isaiah 40, the king of Isaiah 40, is to be trusted and followed today. Not just tomorrow, but today. There's an inherent urgency in our lives in view of this coming king. So again, Isaiah 40, it was looking forward to the coming of the king, right? To Jesus's first coming and to the cross. And now we know this, we look back on the cross and we look ahead to Jesus's second coming when the final glory of the king will be revealed and all flesh will see it together as he comes from outside of the world to us. So the ultimate horizon that Isaiah 40 points us to, and this should fuel urgency in us, is the return of the king. Not his first coming, his second coming. That's just as certain as his first coming. Because if the king really is returning, doesn't that impact how we live our lives today? In Matthew 24, I'm going to summarize this for you. In Matthew 24, it talks about the glory of the Lord Jesus will be revealed, and it's going to be revealed to all tribes and all people, all flesh. And all flesh is going to see the return of the king together. And people are going to respond in two different ways. And their response is an urgent one in light of the king coming. They're either going to respond on that great day with mourning and wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, because what they're going to behold is the judge is coming. For others that are in Christ, the day of the king's return will be joy unimaginable as they hear the words, behold our God. That is the urgency and the importance that Isaiah 40 is calling us to. This isn't a text that you can ignore or think that's really nice. You have to do something with it. You have to believe it and trust it and live your life into it. Or you can think, oh yeah, Jesus is a good guy. He was a really good teacher, but the king who's going to return, 
If you don't believe Jesus is the king, you're not really believing in who Jesus said he is and who scripture points us to that he is. So again, I really want you to hear this. The call for Isaiah 40 is a call for urgency, urgent comfort, urgent repentance, urgent belief, urgent worship, and urgent gospel proclamation. Because one day, Jesus is coming back. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is the most certain thing in this universe. King Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the light and the glory of his return will forever consume the shadows of fear and death. We have God's word on it. As some modern stories say it, it's inevitable. King Jesus is coming back. So what does this mean for us? It means we shouldn't really be satisfied with lesser glories because on the horizon ahead of us, nobody knows the gap between right now and when that horizon's gonna be. That's not the point. Wasn't the point for the people at Isaiah 40. It's not the point for us today, but the horizon in front of us, the king is coming back. And when he does, God's people will experience the deep, inexhaustible comfort of God forever and ever and ever, and there will be no end. That's how good of a king he is, and he's coming. So Isaiah 40 points us to the eternal horizon of heaven. John Piper said it like this, the dawn, the rising of the glory of the Lord was the first coming of Jesus. The high noon of the Lord's glory will be the second coming of Jesus. And that sun will never set. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So are you living like the return of the king is real and certain? Because it is. Last thing, last thing, I I just want to apply this, shepherd us with Isaiah 3 through 5 here in chapter 40. What does it mean for us? What it means for exiles then and what it means for exiles like us today, okay? Remember, Isaiah 40, written to exiles to comfort them in their exile, right? The people of Judah and Jerusalem as they're exiled into Babylon. And then the comfort that God gave his exiles to sustain them through their exile was the comfort of the coming king. What does God's word call us? We're exiles too. First Peter leads off that. We are exiles as we're living between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. Our citizenship is in heaven until Christ returns. We're exiles on earth. This is not our true home. It's like we're cultural exiles. When you're in the culture around you, something is just off. This should not feel like your home because it's not. We're time exiles. This is not our true home. We are going to live on a different plane of time altogether forever and ever with the king. As many have said, right, we're living in the already and not yet in view as we look back on the king's first coming and then in view of his second coming. So how are we to live as exiles? Our text today shows us we are to live as exiles in view of the coming king. That means... We let the glory and wonder and beauty and awe of that break into our present. Our current exile is informed by the coming of the king. That means we wait 
on him. It means that as you see all the challenges and obstacles around you, right, in this cultural moment, in the place in which we live, it means that you, individual brother, sister in Christ, Christian, it means us as a church, our primary mission isn't to overcome those obstacles, to make all those paths straight. Only God is able to overcome those obstacles and break down those barriers. Verses three through five inform our exile today. What is our mission? To be like the voice. We cry out, we herald, we proclaim who the king is, the good news of the king with our voices and with our lives that we're unashamed of the gospel of King Jesus. And then just think about this. Think about throughout church history, haven't God's people been exiles again and again? It's like the story of the church is we're exiles. And when we forget we're exiles, we start to get disoriented. We have to remember we are exiles just like the original audience in Isaiah 40. And as we do that, as we fix our eyes on the wonder and the glory and the reality of the coming king, we start to lay down our temporary comfort to tell other people about the comfort of the king. You have to have your eyes fixed on Jesus to live in the kind of exile that God's word calls us to. So God is always accomplishing his purposes in his way and in his timing. God is always on the move We can trust him, can't we? We always need to be reminded. Verses three through five reminds us, God is good to keep his word. So we're to trust him in our exile as we long for our heavenly home and the coming of the king. What does this mean for us as exiles? We're to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, on King Jesus. We let the gospel, the king's gospel, inform and frame our exile today, right? As exiles who now wait for the return of the king, we can trust that God always overcomes the difficulties that need to be overcome. God is always on time. He overcomes all the hindrances and the valleys and the mountains and the deserts, doesn't he? The king always travels without difficulty. There is nothing in you or in the world around you that is causing the king difficulty or to go on a detour on his path. He is the king. He always arrives without fail and his glory will be revealed. We have God's word on it. And our exile and our circumstances does not change the trustworthiness of God to keep his word, to keep his promises, and for the king to come. So the first coming of Jesus, what did it show us, right? He had to pardon the people's iniquity. So the first coming showed us the sinfulness of our sin, and then it shows us the depth and wonder and glory of his love, that the king of the universe would come to save sinners like us. So that means, right, that as we fix our eyes on that, that actually reorients and reorders us to live as faithful exiles now, to be a people of comfort who are sharing the gospel of comfort with those around us who don't know Jesus yet. Because only King Jesus gives unshakable kind of comfort, right? We can bank our lives on the certain reality 
that the king came the first time and he's coming back. I want to share as we close a slide for you, a quote. I'm going to read it. It should be on the screen behind me. This is talking about how, in view of the gospel, how we're to live as exiles. I heard this just this last week, and it struck a chord with me. I hope it encourages and challenges you too. guy by the name of Christopher Watkin. Yet the Christian should not tread some imaginary, safe, manicured path between pessimism and utopianism, taking care to fall for neither. Think of our exile. In fact, the Christian is both more pessimistic than the pessimist and more utopian than the utopian. The Christian is more pessimistic than the pessimist because she recognizes that the sin at the heart of the human problem can't be expunged by any education or social reform or a cash injection or a medical intervention. The Christian is more utopian than the utopian because she believes in the radical transformation of the human heart, begin in this life and completed in the next. She has a dream. She believes in a reality without mourning or crying or pain. Yes, a reality without death, where every tear will be wiped from the eyes of every one of those who belong to Christ. That's the kind of exile we're to live in, in view of who King Jesus is. Because Jesus is the King, we can know we won't be exiles forever Because in eternity, for God's people, our time of waiting, your time of waiting right now, will feel like the tiniest drop of water in an unimaginable ocean. Your temporary exile pales in comparison to the glory of King Jesus, that we will live with him forever and ever, the joy and comfort we will experience on the new earth. So Gresham Bible Church from Isaiah 40, behold your God and be comforted because of the Savior King who came and he's coming back again. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for the comfort and glory and grace of the life available through Jesus Christ. We praise you that you revealed your glory in Jesus and that one day your glory will be fully and finally revealed when he returns as king. Father, comfort those of us today who need to be comforted. And for those here today who haven't yet trusted in Jesus, I pray your spirit will break into their life and show them the glory and comfort that's only found in Jesus. May we as a church abide in you as we long for the day of your return. May we trust your word as we wait. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.